Welcome to the Outside Right podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Football Travel from Outside Right. I'm editor Chris Lee and in this episode we're looking at two opposites on modern football scale. It's generally friendly, but as I say, very, very loud. So um, maybe maybe bring some uh, earplugs just in case uh, yeah, it gets a little bit too intense. That's Danny Brogan from ChineseSuperLeagueFootball.com who's going to introduce us to the emerging powerhouse in world football, China. And these sort of movements are happening across Europe. Lots of fans are having very similar problems and we need to work together to fight them. And we catch up with Mark Deutsch from the University of Brighton who's been studying the no to modern football movement. Enjoy. The Outside Right podcast. My guest is Danny Brogan, who's the co-founder of ChineseSuperLeagueFootball.com. Welcome, Danny. Well, thanks very much for having me, Chris. Briefly introduce yourself and how you got interested in, in Chinese football. Yes, yeah, so um, I've always had an interest in, in football, obviously not just here in the UK, but, but globally. Um, going back to the, the Gazette of Football days on, on Channel 4. But in, in the last kind of two years, I've really started paying attention to the, the Chinese Super League or as it's more commonly known, uh, the CSL. Um, just over the last two seasons, you've seen some of these big money transfers for some of Europe's best players mm. um, moving over to China. So my, my interest is obviously caught by that. But also, whenever you're in China, um, you really get a sense that, at least in, in terms of football, something really big is happening out there. It's, it's not just big money players are going over there just to pick up their wages. That There really is some, a, a big movement out there. And then obviously recently, um, with the, the transfer window at the start of the year, we've seen you know, an even bigger influx of that type of player coming over to, uh, to the CSL. So my friend who um, I've set the, uh, the sites up, we just wanted to provide like an, an overview of what's happening in, in the CSL and hopefully dismiss some of the, the preconceptions people have about Chinese football, um, as well as kind of providing a bit of an economic and political backdrop as to, to why and how certain things are playing out over there. I must admit I know absolutely nothing about the Chinese Super League other than, as you mentioned, the team seems to have a lot of money buying lots of decent European-based players and not necessarily at the end of their career either. So what, what do people need to know about the CSL? Who are the key teams? When does the season run? Key players and, and that we'll know that are actually playing out there? Okay, uh, well, so the Chinese Super League was set up in, in 2004, so it, it's kind of relatively new, and it, it's, it's been getting bigger and, and better, in inverted commas, uh, um, better over the, the last few years. Uh, the season starts in March, and it runs all the way through to November. At the end of the season, the two teams are at the, who are at the bottom of the CSL, they get relegated to, to what's called China League One, whereas the top three teams in the league they get a place in the AFC Champions League, as does the winner of the Chinese FA Cup. And once they're into the AFC Champions League, they sort of play the best teams from sort of the likes of Korea. So kind of similar to what we have here with the, the European mm. Champions League. In terms of key teams, um, Guangzhou Evergrande, they're the team to beat. If, if you're going to win the league, you've got to beat them. So much so that they've actually won the league the last six seasons. So they're kind of top dog. But... I think, although that would sort of suggest that maybe the league hasn't been as competitive as you know other leagues around the world, which would be fair comment, I'd, I'd suppose, um, this season's sort of pointing to, to something very different. In, in fact, currently, and albeit we're only six games in, uh, it's Evergrande's neighbours, Guangzhou RNF. They're currently top of the league. Mm-hmm. And Evergrande actually have quite a slow start, but they're, they're sort of building up pace. I mean, I think they'll, they'll definitely still be there or thereabouts. But... Um, Whereas they tended to be the big big spenders, 
in the last few years. I mean, they're still very much the richest club in the league. Some of the other teams are really sort of snapping up players now. So the, the, the standard across the league is, is really improving. So some of the key players, which, as it were, household names that are now playing in at CSL is, um, obviously, we've got uh, Mr. Carlos Tevez. He, he, start, he signed in the January transfer window for Shanghai Shenhua. And although his transfer fee was, wasn't was huge, it's his salary which is a, a bit jaw-dropping. He's he's reportedly on £615,000 a week. Wow. So, yeah, he's, he's doing all right for himself. Um, and other players we've got, I mean, there was a real kind of head-turning move that happened again in, in January was, was Oscar. Um, he signed for Shenhua's uh, rival team, Shang, Shanghai SIPG. I think what was really interesting about that was that Oscar's He's, he's only 25 years old, so mm. talking earlier about trying to um, dismiss some of these preconceptions about Chinese Super League, I think there's this idea that maybe older players are going out there, you know, much as is said about the MLS over in the States, that people go over there just to finish their career on a nice final payout. I think things like Oscar moving sort of shows that actually their clubs and albeit the players are quite serious about sort of the project that's happening over there. Other players playing alongside Oscar is his Brazilian teammate, the Hulk. We've also got Axel Witzel, recently signed, the, the Belgian international. Players that are familiar to uh, Premier League fans. We've got John Obi Mikel, formerly of Chelsea. Papa Cisse of Newcastle. Graziano Pele, he's, he's playing alongside mm. Cisse at Shandong Cluen. And even Paulinho, uh, he of uh, Tottenham Hotspur, he's, he's, he's tearing it up at, at Evergrande, in fact. He's... Um, He's one of their star players, along with uh, Jackson Martinez. So, um, yeah, there's some real, real household names on on the pitch, but even on the on the uh, the touchline. So, some of the managers that are coaching some of the teams in the CSL, we've got Andre Villas Boas, Gus Poye, um, Scolari is there. He's he's in charge of Evergrande, so he's kind of uh, he's managing the, the the team to beat. Um, and even Pellegrini turned up recently. He's at Hebei. Uh, and then we've got uh, Fabio Cannavaro, former Italian captain, and Felix Magat. He of uh, well, shorter Fulham fame. He's yeah. he's up here as well. So um, yeah, some big names on the on the on the touchline as well as on the pitch. And how do the locals kind of fare? Who are the local celebrities? They all obviously play slightly second fiddle. I think it'd be fair to say to the foreign players. But some of the big names are uh, Zheng Ji. He's the uh, he's the Chinese captain. He actually had a bit of time over here in the UK. He was at Charlton Athletic and had a few games for Celtic. He plays for Evergrande and obviously being the kind of the Chinese star player, he's, he does, he's, he's the poster boy alongside the, the bigger foreign names. But um, he's, he's, he's a decent player. He's, um, he's a good goal scorer for the Chinese national team. But then we've got Wu Lei. He's, he's Shanghai SIPG's top scorer of all time. Um, granted, they haven't been around for... That many years, but um, he broke into the team. This is quite interesting, I think. He, he broke into the team at just 14, so he's the the, the pinup boy of, of Shanghai SIPG. That's that's despite having the likes of Oscar and Hulk. And who else have we got? There's Zhang Jiping. He he plays for RNF, the mm. team that currently top of the top of the table. He's um he's had a, an indifferent time to the season. He's a he's a fan favourite with RNF supporters, but um, China recently, in terms of uh, an international game, they they lost to Iran, which pretty much ended their their World Cup hopes. We, mm. we might talk about their the, their World Cup plans in, in a bit, but 
yeah, they lost to one nil, and it was kind of a, a mistake from Xi Peng. But not only that, his uh, his estranged wife is now trying to get him banned from not only in, internationally but also from his club side for a uh, a series of shall we say alleged affairs. So oh, yeah. um, poor Xi Peng is um, yeah, he's he's not having the best best year this season. What is behind then this kind of sudden well, not sudden, just the rapid rise of football in China? I know they've always been to Western clubs in recent years. Is it a state prestige thing? Is this a potential future World Cup bid? I mean, what is behind this? The Chinese Super League. I think it's a, a, a range of range of factors. Some of which you've just mentioned there. I think China is obviously such a huge political and economical uh, economic power. I mean, even in in some sports, you look at how they they do in the Olympics now. They they really tear it up. But it's never happened in with football, and I think it kind of is not. The national ego, as it were, they're, they're a very proud country, China. So, um, I think the amount of money that's been pumped in here, it's it is to it kind of just increase the uh, not only the brand but also the people's conception about Chinese football. But on top of that is the president. So, President Xi Jinping, he is a big football fan. I mean, that's it's not for show. He he really is you know passionate about football. Um, you may have seen he came over in 2015 to the UK, and there was a bizarre selfie of him, David Cameron, and Sergio Aguero. It was it was definitely one of the year's strangest selfies. So he became president in 2013, but even before taking office, he was talking about his love of the game, and and since taking power, he's he's made football part of the curriculum. That was that was a new thing, and he has said some pretty bold statements. He's, he says he wants China to win the World Cup within the next 15 years. Try, try not to laugh too much there, Chris. No. And not only that, he also wants China to become a, like a footballing superpower by 2050. So, you know, said in the same breath as the likes of Brazil or, or, or Germany. I'm, I'm sceptical of that. I think uh, they should probably aim at qualifying for a World Cup first. Um, Have they ever done that? So uh, they, they did. They qualified for one, which was um, in 2002. Um, oh, right. Japan and South Korea. Exactly, not far from them, South Korea and Japan. However, they, they played three group games, they lost all their three group games, and they failed to score in those three group games. So, so that means North Korea have been in more World Cups than China. That's a, that is a fact, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> they have probably much to China's disdain, yeah. Like I say, they they need to... I think start regularly qualifying before they can start talking about winning the winning the thing. But they have a population and passion on their side, that's for sure. Oh, absolutely, and I mean, Xi Jinping is—he's he, certainly, you know, he's as I say, he—he's definitely passionate about this project, and he's—he's he's certainly putting his, his money where his mouth is, so to speak. He's—I've um, got some some figures here, for example. He's—he's he's, he's opening up twenty thousand footballing academies this this year alone. Uh, and by 2020, he wants to have built 70,000 football pitches. So, as I say, I think winning the World Cup in, in 15 years is, is is unrealistic. But he he is also setting the groundwork for a longer term project, and he's he's encouraging young players to um to sort of like pick up football. Maybe they were that they didn't really see it as a a financial um, opportunity for them. Maybe their parents were wanting them to insist on, you know being good students and, mm. and hitting the books. And within the CSL themselves, there's been some quite interesting rules introduced just to, to help support this idea. So, for example, 
And this was a rule that was only introduced towards the end of the January transfer window. And it was that only three foreign players can play on a, be on the pitch for one team at any, at any point now. Mm. And if you believe the rumours, that's actually why... Do you remember there was, there was a lot of talk about Diego Costa having his head turned by the CSL in January? Mm. Well, one of the rumours was that that deal fell through because of this rule that was introduced, that the team was ready to spend a fortune on Costa and then all of a sudden this, this rule got introduced and they realised that, well, they might have to pay all this money and then have Costa sitting on the bench or, or one of their other stars. Um, but the idea is obviously that, you know, they'll have more Chinese players playing at any point so that they will improve, they'll learn from the foreign players that are playing alongside them. Um, another rule that uh, they've introduced is that two under-23 players must be in a CSL squad any, on any match day. They must have at least two under-23 players. And not only that, one of those players must start. They, they must be in the starting eleven, which I, I think it's an interesting idea and you can see the reasoning behind it. However, it has meant that we've had quite a few farcical situations of one of these under-23 players starting the game and then literally been subbed off within 15, 20 minutes just so that, you know, they've, they've ticked that box. You know, it's, it's nice in theory, I guess, with, with a lot of rules, don't they? They get introduced and then people find ways around it. But, you know, the idea is there. Another rule is that um, all goalkeepers must be Chinese. The, uh, the, the Chinese national team obviously seen that they, they need to start from the back so they're wanting to um, to build up a real um, kind of list of, of strong Chinese goalkeepers. And Fair uh, you watch some of the goals on our, on some of the highlights on our uh, website. You, you might question how well that's working out with some of the goalkeeping. But um, you know, as I say, the, the sentiment's definitely there. Brilliant. And so that's the on the pitch and in the club. But what about the fan culture? Is it's quite new? They must obviously be taking their cue from what they see elsewhere, or is there a real Chinese infusion? Well, I th the Chinese have always had, uh, they, they've always been aware of like the football globally. I mean, uh, they they pay attention to the Premier League. They they probably choose a different team to support depending on who's winning. Um, but, you know, they, they love the likes of Messi and Ronaldo, just, just like many countries around the world. However, if you go to a CSL game, I think most people would be really surprised about how, how passionate they are there. I mean, the atmosphere could get really loud. A lot of fans will turn up with big drums, megaphones to, to really get the chants going down. And despite there being seating at these stadiums, they don't sit down. And, and I mean, literally for the entire game, they will be stood up. And what's quite interesting about it is it, it, it's in contrast to sort of everyday life in China where, where, where things are quite conservative. So it's almost like it's a, it's a kind of a, a release for them. So... The, the atmosphere is really good. However, that said, there are certain issues which are just problematic to China as a country. Um, for example, the distance between grounds. I mean, you get a great kind of rivalry uh, for local derbies. However, when you've got to travel literally tens of thousands of miles, there's, there's not a great away presence. So that can be a bit problematic. But as I say, in terms of um, proximity, like if a, a for example, the Shanghai um, Shenhua versus SIPG game. I mean that that can get really quite quite heated almost. Over some of the, the previous seasons, there have actually been a little bit of trouble, particularly in that derby, of of fans kind of like spilling over and, and you know a little bit of violence here and there. So what tends to happen now with games like that, 
um, stadiums will actually keep a section empty between um, between the fans, so that you know there's they're, they're not in close proximity together, just to avoid any mm. uh, any clash. I mean, that said, there's not so much the the boozy laddie culture that you might find over here, over in England. It's generally friendly, but as I say, very very loud. So um, maybe maybe bring some uh, earplugs just in case uh, yeah, it gets a little bit too intense. So what about tickets then? Uh, how easy it, or hard is it to to get hold of those as a visitor? I mean, the cost of them is is really inviting. I mean, you can get a ticket for between sort of ten pounds and t- ten and twenty pounds. And I mean, if you were living in China. You get season tickets for as little as fifty pounds. I mean, de- wow. depending on which which club you want to go for. I mean, that, that can go up to one hundred and fifty for some of the, the the top teams. But I mean, that's that's still pretty pretty good value, especially you know you, you're seeing some of these players like the likes of of Oscar and uh, Jackson Martinez playing. In terms of how you get them, you can usually pick them up on on uh, the day of, on match day. Ideally, I would suggest going a few days before. Just go to the stadium itself. Be careful of ticket touts. I would say if you're buying them on match day, there's 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 a lot about, and there have been like big instances of of fake tickets being mm. sold out. So make sure you go somewhere like within the stadium. There's official shops there. And they speak English. Yeah. Mm. Just point your fingers, say two tickets. <laughs> that, that's pretty much what yeah what you'll tend to do. If if you're with someone that speaks Chinese, all the better. But um, yeah, it, it can be um. They, they have like kind of maps of the stadium, so you can kind of point. I mean, people know what you're there for, so um, it's um, it's not too difficult. But um, our, our website, ChineseSuperLeagueFootball.com, we, we're also um, offering a ticket ticketing service to some of the bigger CSL games. We effectively can can uh, solve that problem for any sort of translation issues and stuff. We can t- take care of that. And um, depending where you're based in China, we can we can get those tickets delivered to you direct. So that's a, that's a service we offer on our website. And uh, if you're here in the UK, you can uh, catch some of the games on Sky Sports now. That's something they've, they've just taken on this season. So uh, you can catch some of the big games on on Sky. OK. Awesome. I'm going to look into that. I'd like to sort of make it over at some point um, to China. Um, so where can people connect with you online? OK. So um, obviously we've got our website. Uh, it's ChineseSuperLeagueFootball.com. Um, we've got a contact page there. We, we obviously we really enjoy hearing from people. We're very happy to answer any questions people might have about the uh, the Chinese Super League. As I said, we're providing this ticketing service, and we've also just started providing uh, or starting to do this uh, offering coaching roles here in China. As mentioned, there's all these academies being opened up, and um, we're looking at sort of getting enthusiastic coaches from from the UK or, or even worldwide to, to come out in China and really. Yeah, have have an amazing experience and and showcase their own footballing skills to a, a, a very enthusiastic Chinese footballing population. Our Twitter handle is CSL Football underscore, um, and we also have a YouTube channel. So um, as I say, we, we're always keen to hear from uh, from football fans. You know, whatever league they follow. Brilliant. Well, Danny, good luck with that, and uh, thanks for joining us. Cheers, Chris. The Outside Right Podcast. My guest is Mark Deutsch, who's a senior research fellow at the University of Brighton. Welcome, Mark. Uh, hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, you've been studying no to modern football movement for a while. We're going to touch on that in a moment. Do you want to just to briefly introduce to us to, to what you've been doing and how did you get involved there? Hi, yeah. Um, I'm a researcher at the University of Brighton, and I've really got involved in all this through my PhD, which was on Italian football fans 
um, sort of see sort of see how fan movements have taken off around Europe. Mm-hmm. How do you define the sort of the no to modern football movement? How did it come around? What, what instigated it? What is modern football? I suppose. Well, yeah, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question. Um, there's two sort of strands. You know, this is a this is a pan-European movement, um, and it's become very much an umbrella movement. Um, lots of fans of various sort of political persuasions and you know of various clubs have all sort of collected collected under this umbrella. Principally, it's around economic changes that took place in the 1990s. I think 1992 is a really good starting point here because both the Premier League and the Champions League were formed in 1992. Um, and I think that starts the process in Britain. Um, it started slightly earlier um, in Italy, partly because of economic changes that Silvio Berlusconi was bringing in. Mm-hmm. Um, and they called it No Al- uh, Calcio Moderno, which is No to Modern Football. And this sort of caught on, um, particularly in Britain, Italy, to a lesser extent, Spain, and to a certain extent in, in Germany. And the reason I qualify Spain and Germany is because the ownership structures there are very different. Now, we are seeing German clubs taking this on board a lot more, um, partly because of changes to security, changes to policing, changes to, you know, for example, controls around pyrotechnics, for example, controls around what type of activities fans and ultras can take part in. Um, but it's generally a resistance against a whole range of measures that football has brought in. So, as I say, in Italy and, and England, I would argue that it's more around economics. It's a, more around ticket prices. It's around all-season stadiums. It's around a, a general shifting of fandom from being fans to being consumers to being customers. You know, more merchandising, you know, a greater range or, or diversity of international tourist fans, supporters, uh, customers coming along, and also about sort of television deals and shifting um, football from 3pm on a Saturday or 4pm on a Sunday in Italy, for example, to you know, Monday nights, Friday nights, etc. However, looking at this from a more European perspective, you've also got to take into account changes to policing, um, changes to the... Um, sanctions and regulations of federations. Um, notably, UEFA has become the sort of symbol of modern football in much of Europe, not so much so in England, but um, definitely in Europe, because they're the ones tending to enforce regulations around stadium safety, um, policing, and in particular, lots of things have got wrapped up, particularly in Eastern Europe and certain parts of Italy, for example, around anti-discrimination. So it's all wrapped up in this general feeling that football is changing. We can't do what we want as fans. And it's about regulating our control. We can't do pyro. We can't make certain chance. And it's about sanitizing football to turn it into a media-friendly, family-friendly television commodity that's marketable across the world. This is why it's become a a general um, resistance movement, an umbrella movement, because there's so many different parts to it, and each fan and fan group will have very different motivations of why they're resisting modern football. Okay, and um, can you give us some examples of no to modern football in action that we'd know of, or maybe we'll hear of soon? Well, I think there's quite a few around Europe, so... uh, for example, uh, Legia Warsaw fans 
two or three seasons ago, um, were sanctioned by UEFA um, and then put on a very big choreography, quite clearly stating that they thought that UEFA were the, a group of fat pigs only in it for the money. This was after they were kicked out of the Champions League to, to Celtic because Legia Warsaw fielded an eligible player. Um, and they saw this as a general, again, a move towards Celtic having more fans, therefore making making UEFA more money from television, as opposed to a, a regulatory uh, infringement. Um, so big choreographies like that are quite common um, in Italy, um, in Germany. There have been big banners saying um, no to modern football. Dortmund fans have put up, and Bayern Munich fans, for example, at uh, Arsenal a couple of years ago, or last season, put up banners commenting on the expense of or how expensive Arsenal tickets were mm. um, and talking about no to modern football in that way. And I suppose um, Germany faces a challenge now with the rise of um, RB Leipzig as well, don't they, internally? Exactly, and RB Leipzig is an exa- excellent example of how German fans have mobilised against what they consider to be modern football, which is a private company buying a club, um, but effectively... In Germany, because they have the full 50 plus one rule, where mm. 50% of the club plus one share is owned by the fans, RB Leipzig got around it by having very expensive membership fees, which effectively led to only a handful of RB or Red Bull company employees being able to afford to actually become members, which then allowed them to vote through any changes around the club's at Leipzig. Um, again, this is slightly problematic, is that RB Leipzig have funded a, a good youth policy with a very solid team ethos, which has enabled them to do quite well in the Bundesliga this year. Um, but the way that they have done it through slightly financially doping the system and also by circumventing regulations through what many consider to be immoral means means that many fans have resisted. They you know, they refuse to go and watch uh, their team play against RB Leipzig and generally will um, ignore their results. Um, and I can't remember who the team was, but it might have been Sam Pauli, actually, who refused to put the RB bit into as the official badge when they were playing against them last season. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it's about, you know, this is something quite substantial within large parts of the German fan base. They're, they're not alone there. I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent on, on Leipzig, but Bayer Leverkusen is obviously owned by a chemicals factory and, and don't Volkswagen own Wolfsburg? So it's not entirely unheard of that a company owns a team there, but it's, I guess it's kind of endemic in the modern era of, or maybe it's the way they went about it, that's this kind of ired everyone quite so much. Yeah, I mean, Wolfsburg and Leverkusen were given special ex- um, exemptions because... Volkswagen and Bayer had shown that they had long-standing interests with those particular clubs. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wolfsburg was the, the the football team for the Volkswagen factory, but that has been mitigated to 20 years of investment. So there are certain people, uh, Martin Kinder at Hanover 96 is particularly interested to, to sort of use his long-standing interest in Hanover to try to capitalise on his investment, i.e. to turn it into a Premier League-type club and make lots more money. Um, and RB Leipzig have definitely done it in a very different way. Um, so th- I think there is a, a growing awareness of fans across Europe 
which has been a, a marked aspect of football fandom since the 1990s, is that fans historically have been rivals, have always looked at each other as being, we're different from you. Um, but since the 90s, we've started to see it as, well, actually, these problems could affect us. This isn't just unique to that particular club, mm. and we're going to support and stand together. Um, and you know, a good example of that sort of solidarity was, you know, I currently live in Brighton. Um, I grew up as a Plymouth Algar fan, and 20 years ago, Brighton were looking to be relegated. Were in severe financial problems. They had a, an owner who was looking to move them to Portsmouth and Gillingham. And a Plymouth Argyle fan who lived in Brighton suggested having a Fans United Day. And fans from all over the country came to Brighton to show their solidarity. And these sort of movements are happening across Europe, which is why we have organisations like Football Supporters Federation, Football Supporters Europe, which is across Europe, um, to show that fans have similar problems, which is where the node of modern football comes together, is lots of fans are having very similar problems and we need to work together to fight them. And how does this kind of manifest itself in England? I suppose we could look at things like the AFC Wimbledon experience, perhaps. And, you know, there's smaller movements. The one you're familiar with, Whitehawk, obviously, uh, Clapton, Dulwich, that sort of thing. Very much sort of no to modern football type movements. Yeah, I think in, in England it's gone sort of two ways. One is there are sort of big movements. So against modern football, AMF is a, is a fairly structured um, sort of campaign, trying to campaign against things like ticket prices and, and you know, campaigning you know, that you know, incorporates things like safe standing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there's another way of doing it, which doesn't necessarily mean about having campaigns or marches, but is actually just about enacting another form of fandom, which is going to non-league supporting your club in the way that you see fit and the, the very performance of being a fan at somewhere like Dulwich or Clapton or Whitehawk is saying this is how fandom should be you know it's not explicitly against modern football even though we do exhibit areas where we are challenging that but just by going along having a you know being able to stand being able to sing and have a beer um, be creative with our songs and do it in an inclusive way where we're not sort of um, harking back to some nostalgia from the 1970s, which was, let's be honest, incredibly racist, sexist, um, and probably at least uh, pretty homophobic as well. We can actually say, well, look, we can have fun, we can do all these things, and we can be very inclusive. And actually, this is what football fandom is. So the very practice of just doing it is a way of resisting in our own particular way. Um, so where do you see it all going then? It's going to be very interesting because football at the top level is definitely getting more globalised. Um, it seems that fans of certain clubs, I mean, we only have to look to the whole Wenger out campaign that you know Arsenal tend to be doing it the right way. Um, and yet this isn't enough to compete with other clubs who will bring in or have very wealthy donors. So Arsenal, some Arsenal fans want to see that investment spent. So it's constantly about spending more money, spending more money, spending more money, which is fine if you can attract an, you know, an ever-increasing number of global billionaires. Mm. Um, but for the rest of football down the league, that's not the case. So what I would hope would happen is that more fans will mobilise and we'll set up supporters' trusts and we'll take control of our own clubs and we'll 
support our team in a way that's not just about wanting to win things at every at every turn uh, by spending more and more money, but actually working with the local community, um, knowing the players, making friends on the terraces, um, and generally just having your club as part of your local community rather than just simply a, a, an asset that's going to be milked for money. Brilliant. Okay, thanks so much, Mark. It's certainly going to be fascinating to see how the whole movement unfolds. Um, where can people connect with you online? Um, I do have a uni website, um, which you can find through the University of Brighton, or I can be found on Twitter, which is at Mark Doidge, one word. Brilliant. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much for your time. Cheers, Chris. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks again to our guests. You can find more at OutsideWrite, W-R-I-T-E uk. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at OutsideWrite. And if you like the show, do please leave us a good review on iTunes. Until the next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.